looking at Haggai, but this is a trick. I'm reading from Psalm 147. And the second half. So Psalm 147, verse 12 to 20. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Yep, it's worth it. It's great to be with you today. My name's Mark. I'm an elder at Canterbury Gardens. Um, sorry about the sun. If you have to shuffle around, that's fine. Make yourself as comfortable as you can. Spare a thought for the people of Haggai's day who had to listen to a very uncomfortable message. <clears throat> We're talking about reviving God's building project today, and so I thought I'd start with an update on perhaps the world's most significant rebuild project. No, Paul, I've got this. It's not Project Livingstones. It's not CGC rebuild. But remember April 15, 2019, and Notre Dame of Paris, that ancient cathedral, was destroyed by fire. Do you remember that instant response? Was there ever such a unanimous and passionate commitment to rebuild a building? In the days following that fire, the French President Emmanuel Macron set a, set a five-year restoration deadline. He wanted it to be ready in time for the 2024 Paris Olympics. We will rebuild. Money is not an object. And it wasn't. Hundreds of millions of euros flowed in in support. But according to experts familiar with medieval restoration work, it could actually take 15 to 20 years to rebuild that roof and spire and stone vaulting. And it's going to take materials and techniques used when Notre Dame was built in the 12th century. And that's going to require the training of artisans, masons, mortar makers, carpenters. Experts say it could take up to a decade to train people up to that level of skill, enough people, because they're going to need up to 400 tradesmen. And then, as if that's not enough, that noble task, that too hit the same hurdle we did, the hurdle of COVID, and work ground to a halt. Well, you might be uh, excited to know that work has resumed and is gathering pace. Will it be ready for Paris 2024? Watch this space. Yeah, it seems to me that it's just par for the course that a building project is going to blow out beyond expected completion date, it's going to blow out beyond budget, it's going to hit unforeseen hurdles. And today we're considering what does God do when his building project grinds to a halt? 
This is a building project that will be familiar to us if you've been journeying with us at CGCC. We read through Lamentations, we read through Ezra, and yeah, I'm talking about the Temple to Yahweh rebuilt in Jerusalem, destroyed in 587 BC. Now, I'm thinking about making a movie, and I had a slide for you, but you won't be able to see it. So what you have to imagine is, this is how I'm going to open my movie. The black screen and bold yellow font rises up. Episode 4, A New Hope. <laughs> A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, 18 years have passed since that small, faithful remnant of Jews returned from Babylon to the distant outpost of Judah and set up camp in the ruined city of Jerusalem. Fueled with a zeal to return to the land promised to their fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and fully supported, even encouraged, by the leader of the new empire, Cyrus of Persia. An altar to Yahweh of hosts, ruler of the armies of heaven, king of all kings, was re-established on the Temple Mount. Then, under the keen eye of Zerubbabel, leader of this small, vulnerable band, work on the Temple was eagerly begun. Until resistance arose from the people of the land, those wretched Samaritans, a resistance fueled by fear of these confident rebels and the unwanted attention they might bring from imperial overlords. By sustained Samaritan pressure, by strong-arm tactics, fear was induced in the faithful remnant. Work on the temple ground to a halt. Intimidated, nervous, the frustrated community of Jews are busying themselves on their homes and farms, attempting to find security, comfort, self-sufficiency. But life is hard. Prosperity eludes them. And into this malaise strides a prophet known only as Haggai. You can go back and listen to our sermon series if you want. Cam in particular dealt with this period of delay and the impact of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, prophets credited with reigniting the building project. The book of Ezra records these facts, that God ultimately made sure his temple was rebuilt and completed through the support of the prophets. So why look at it again? Well, in Haggai, and in Zechariah for that matter, we've got the enormous privilege to have the record of just how God did that. We get to hear the very sermons that inspire the people. We get to hear God's message to reinvigorate his church. Now, I might summarise Haggai chapter 1, God's method for a successful rebuilding project like this. And it's more or less what you'll see on your outline Send a prophet to preach. A prophet who will challenge their priorities and who will apply pressure. And the result will be penitence, God's presence and productive building. So, apologies for that alliteration. Won't you listen as I recite this historic sermon and see if that was a fair summary. So... Listen as I read Haggai, chapter 1, 1 to 9. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say, it is not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. The word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Let's consider the preaching of Haggai. Preaching which challenges priorities and then applies pressure. You cannot serve two masters and you can only prioritise one building project at a time. And God challenges the people's choice. You see, God's priorities are clear. Put me at the centre. Isn't that one of the most confronting features of life in God's world, of life in God's community? That he does expect to be at the centre. He is seeking his own pleasure and glory. Did you see that central verse, verse 8? Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That may seem like a foreign concept. But you are not the reason for God's existence. You are not the centre of the universe. No, God claims that he is. He is seeking his own pleasure and glory. And this happens as we prioritise him, as we come to meet and know and follow him. So what's the centre? Remember, if you were with us through the Exodus series, that the original tabernacle, the forerunner to the temple, that tent in the desert, was literally at the centre of the camp. It was set up and the tribes camped around it each night. Peter Adam took us through that message and the role of the temple through the Bible. Note that the temple has always and only ever been a symbol a picture. It has only ever been a symbol, a picture of what is truly important to God. God is glorified when his people are focused on him, centred on him, brought close to him. For this reason there is no physical temple in Eden, nor is there a temple in the new heavens and the new earth. And nor is there now that Jesus has become for us a temple, a place we come to meet with God. Nevertheless, what a powerful image this temple is. Even as it lies in ruins, 
even as it lies desolate in the middle of the city in that outpost of Judah. Hey, whose land is that over there? Oh yeah, that's the, uh, that's the Jews. Cyrus gave it back to them. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Who, whose house is that in the middle? You know, that, that big one there with no roof. Oh well, that's their God's house. Uh, why is it ruined? Doesn't, doesn't he care? Is he dead? Don't, don't they care? Hang on. If they aren't worshipping him, how is he their God? If they're not worshipping him, who do they worship? What a vivid image. So God issues a strong challenge to his audience. Why have you prioritised your own comfort, satisfaction, secure place in the world? And why have you put my Priority One building project on the back burner? Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in panelled houses? Your panelled houses? While this house lies in ruins. And again in verse 9. My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now look, let's be honest. That, that challenge can be answered with a shrug. You know, so what? Why would I bother with God and religion? And, and if I'm not bothered about God and religion, why would I be concerned with my own... Why wouldn't I be concerned with my own welfare? <laughs> why wouldn't I? What could be more important? So what we need to notice right at the outset is that this is a stern message to a covenant community. Think of a marriage covenant. To a community bound by promised commitment to the relationship. This is a message to those who acknowledge that the Lord is God, their God. The Lord who rescued their ancestors from Egypt so that they could serve him as his people, as his priests, declaring his praises to all nations as we heard about last week. Not only so, but this remnant in Haggai's day, they themselves have experienced a second exodus. They have been redeemed a second time as they were called out of another Egypt, out of Babylon. Friends, the highest expectations that God has are reserved for those whom he has rescued and those he has called to live with him as Lord as master. The highest expectations God has are for those that he has rescued and called to live with him as master. So do you see the similarities with us here as a community at CGCC? The similarities to us, to we who claim to put the Lord first because he has rescued us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you had received mercy. As Josh reminded us last week, 1 Peter 2. But I wonder what about you? Perhaps you feel like you would like to get closer to God. 
Maybe you feel like you ought to try to impress him. Maybe you never really felt like you truly belong in God's community. And maybe you're just a welcome visitor here today, just checking out church. Let me give you a warning about God's building project. You cannot simply build yourself into God's people. You cannot build your way into God's family. You cannot simply join in the activities of a church, singing and dinners and small groups and friendship groups. You cannot do that and think that you will please God. Come back with me to Notre Dame. You could be a master builder, a skilled artisan. You could travel to France. You could tirelessly labour alongside French men and women to get that cathedral up in time for Paris 2024. It will not make you a Frenchman. It will not make you Catholic. No, you cannot build yourself into the people of God. So just as Steve reminded us, you need to acknowledge Jesus as your rescuer. He gave his life to rescue you. You must submit to him as master. God raised him to life to be Lord of all. You need the mercy of Christ. He will build you into his house if you come and ask him. On the other hand, while we're on the topic of Notre Dame, if you do gain your French citizenship, if you do become Catholic, then what a brilliant way to display your new identity, your new allegiance, than by going all the way and to join in that rebuilding project. But back to us who, who have received mercy, who are called to glorify God. I wonder how you feel when you imagine God speaking this challenge to you. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? What might God say about your priorities over the summer or over the last year? Or since you became an adult? What might he say about your priorities since you became a parent, since you were baptised? This is a message to those who for the best part of a generation, almost 20 years, have said, oh, it's just not the right time for me to engage in building God's people, in serving him. I've got too much going on right now. It's just not time. Is that you? Well, maybe you've been busy building. You have been busy, but could your passionate priorities be off-centre? Have you first and foremost prioritised the building up of God's people during the reign of COVID-19? And friends, to the extent that we have, that's excellent. But let's ask ourselves, have we put more effort into panelling our own metaphorical houses? For example, have we put more effort into rallying to secure our own political and economic security? Striving for our own religious freedoms? Or have we spent more time fearing and trying to avoid sickness, whether sickness from a virus or sickness from vaccines? Have we spent more time fearing that than fearing God? Now I acknowledge readily, none of these things are necessarily bad. 
but neither is putting a roof on your house or panelling your walls. The challenge from God is whether we have been putting his mission first. Have we been putting God's mission first? And in a covenant community, I expect God's challenge to really produce a healthy dose of guilt in at least some of us. And that can be uncomfortable. In fact, you might well think that's quite enough of a sermon for today. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough of a sermon for Haggai. No, the pressure is just beginning. This community, despite their best efforts to secure their own sustainable living arrangements, has been a long way from thriving. They have, in fact, been under pressure. So let's look at preaching that applies pressure. How? To do this, Haggai invites reflection. It's not so much soul-searching now, but it's about evaluating how life has been going. What have you been experiencing along the way? Look at verse 5 and 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, and but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Haggai says to them, how have you fared since work on the house of God ground to a halt? Look how God draws them in with these, these observations they can easily resonate with. You noticed, didn't you, that life was hard? Yeah, 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 we thought it was hard too, yeah. And that your harvest was meagre? Yeah, it's been hard, yakka. And expenses always seem to outweigh profit. Look at it, he goes on in verse 9. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. See, God has drawn them in. They can readily acknowledge life is tough. And then God hits them with the truth. Verse 9. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away, says God. I blew it away. It was me. What little bit of wheat mixed with chaff and stubble that you were able to gather from the ground, I blew that away. Verse 10. Therefore, this is why the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, and on man and on beast and on all their labour. It was me. I called for that drought. I called for that ruin because you didn't fix my ruins. Let's be honest, that is a scary thought, isn't it? Imagine you were one of these people. Where is God when the world is pressuring us, persecuting us? And if God isn't here, we might as well just struggle on alone. Let's forget the temple. Let's forge ahead on our own building projects. Let's at least have a secure home base to weather life's storms. Have you ever felt like this? But now it is revealed 
I have. But now it is revealed God was there all along, making life hard for them. That's scary, and it's intentionally scary. Can you imagine a sinking stomach contemplating all that wasted time and effort? The blood-draining realisation, all these years we have been doomed to fail. We have been under the Lord's discipline and disapproval. And I think if I was the average Australian hearing this message, I would conclude that God is a bully. Well, let's look at what Haggai's audience think. Let's look at the result of Haggai's preaching. And the result is penitence. Now, let's go to verse 11 and finish this sermon again. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground brings forth, and on man and on beast and on all their labours. And then silence. That's the end of the sermon. Great sermon, Haggai. Talk about pressure. Priorities, pressure, full stop. The congregation is speechless. They shuffle out. They ponder. But then, slowly, steadily, they coalesce. They come together. I don't know whether it was in the next few hours or days, but it was no more than weeks. And verse 12, then, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared God. All the people obeyed and feared the Lord. That's an amazing response to a very confronting sermon. Haggai applied pressure by revealing the pressure that God had been slowly slowly applying. So far from bullying, he was actually preparing them to receive this message. Still, doesn't part of you still wonder why they weren't angry at God? Look, I think for the biblically minded among the remnant, and clearly they were thinking along these lines, I think this message could have actually been a relief to these original hearers. I think it could have been a relief. Bear with me here. Remember that when God gave his people the land, when they came from Egypt, through Moses he promised blessings for living my way. Through Moses he promised curses for disobedience, for not worshipping Yahweh alone. Listen to one example of the curses promised. You can read them Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. This is Deuteronomy 28, 38. You have... You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You have harvested much, but sown little. Hang on, that's us, says Haggai's audience. And Haggai says, it is God doing it. So, when they see the awesome Lord of hosts, not actually failing to work, but actively working against them, or at least against their worldly priorities, 
when they see him pouring out his promised curse, they recognise the God of Moses and they respond in fear and repentance. Because if God is still disciplining us, then he is still our God. This, indeed, is still our land promise. And not only that, if he is still keeping his promise to curse us, then there is hope that he will keep his promise to bless us if we repent. Friends, all through the Bible we hear and see this same fatherly discipline. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Go back to Hebrews 12 for a reminder. Or Revelation 2, 19. Those whom I love, says the Lord Jesus, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Therefore, as scary as it is to contemplate the disapproval of God, in reverent fear we can actually acknowledge it is better for us that he remains our God and that he works to capture our attention, to turn us around. So, if God is calling you to repent, do that today. And also remember, we don't need to experience this hardship. Let the people of Haggai's day be example enough for us. Let us, as a community, continually fear and obey the Lord. But I don't want you to miss just how it is that God brings about this remarkable response, this total response, this revival of an entire community, from the leaders down to the people. And it all happens because God reveals his nearness, God's presence. Where is God? Look at the realisation Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people come to. See, not only was he not absent over those past years, but he is present now. Because today we hear his voice. We hear him speaking. Verse 12. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. What they acknowledge is that they are hearing the voice of God in the words of Haggai because they recognise that God sent him. This is what God promised in Deuteronomy 18. The people said, no more thunder from the mountain. No more terrifying God of awesome fire on the mountain. And God said, okay, well you will hear my voice. I will speak to you through my prophets. And that's where God is present, palpably present, through the preaching of his word. And in case you missed it, look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And that message is, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. This is not a promise delivered lightly. This is a promise after the people turn to obey and kneel in fear. It's not delivered too early, lest the people think they have God on their side, no matter their priorities. But now, God promises, while you're committed to my building project, 
I am with you, your support and strength. And again, how do they know he is with them? God makes his presence known in the preaching of his word. They hear his voice. And so to the last point there, before we conclude, is the product, the result. God's building project has been kick-started. It is underway for his purposes. With the preaching of the word, with the reassurance of his presence, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord, their God, the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So some three weeks later. Well, haven't we seen now how Haggai is said to have been instrumental in God's building project? Why Ezra records that they support the work not with their hammers and tongs, but with their words, with their preaching. Their words were the voice of God. The people knew that God was with them and God stirred them to action through that word. Can I conclude now with three encouragements as I proclaim Christ to you? To you weary builders, to you whose priorities have been off-centre, fear and obey. Reprioritize. Acknowledge you will not prosper, though you may get rich in the world. You will be frustrated, though you may seek an easy path, though you may seek pleasure. Commit to the building effort and hear the promise of your covenant Lord Jesus. Truly, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not. There is no one who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. In the church, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, are we not one big family? And yes, persecutions also, but in the age to come, eternal life. That is the promise from your Lord. And to you, ready and eager builders, and I know there are lots of us here, those who would build the house of God, may we go and get wood and build the house that God may be glorified, that he may take pleasure in it. Bring your gifts, bring your skills, bring your love this year, your encouragement, your self-sacrifice. Bring it all to him. And then lastly, to you, would-be Haggai's. Do you would-be reformers? Do you long to encourage your fellow builders? We do, don't we? How will God use you to stir up his people? It won't be through cups of tea. No, Shabu, not even coffee. It won't be through barbecues. It won't be through music. And it will not be through a new church building. No. How will God stir his people? It will be through the prophetic word made more sure through the message of God's clearest word, Christ. 
that messenger who assures us, I will build my church. His word stirred up the waters of creation. His word withheld the waters of dew above Jerusalem. That same word stirred up the people through the preaching of Haggai, challenging their priorities, reassuring them of his presence. Yes, God will support his church as they continually hear and respond to the proclamation of Christ. So my prayer is that we may all live up to Colossians 3.16 this year. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. May it be so, Lord. Amen.